Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I am Guy from Guy's Woodshop, and I'm joined as always by Hui Huin, aka the Alabama Woodworker. Hey, Guy. Hey, Hui. <laughs> and Sean Walker of Simple Co. fame. Hey, Guy and Hui. Ooh, hey, Sean. How are you, Sean? I'm good. That's good. Awesome. This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. And we also have a Patreon account. How exciting. <laughs> right now we have one level and we're simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife. And I'd also like to say hello to a new Patreon we have this time, Rich LaHoke. And I hope I'm saying that right, Rich. If I'm not, I'm sorry. And we sincerely hope that you give us your support in the future. So stay tuned to the end of the show, and we're going to talk about some of the things we've got going on in our own shops. But for right now, we're going to get right into it. And the first question goes to Hui. All right. So this is an issue that I've never actually come across because I live in Alabama, and it doesn't get terribly cold here. Why are you taking the question? Because I think, you know, I, it, 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 it's winter months, you know, we might as well bring it up. And, you know, so right. not I'm all just, of us I'm have just, the, uh, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> not all of us have, uh, have the privilege of living in, you know, hundred percent humidity all year round. Right. So, um, mm -hmm. this is from Josiah and he has, I have a question on wood glue. Usually I use type on, but on the bottle, it says it shouldn't be used in temperatures below 50 degrees. So are there any glues that work in temperatures below freezing? My shop has no heat and I'm in northern Iowa. So we'll go below zero before the winter is over. Thanks for any advice you may have. Keep the podcast coming. So the only glue that I'm aware of that actually will not freeze, I'm not saying that it won't be extremely viscous. It's the only one that I know of is polyurethane glue. Am I correct in that? I read somewhere, I believe, where actually using polyurethane glue will, you can actually use it below freezing temperatures. But I'm sort of wondering is like, even if it was like extremely viscous, wouldn't that be an issue using that kind of glue anyway? This is a question I would really have to research quite a bit. My initial reaction to it would be to use a two-part epoxy. Mm -hmm. Since there's an exothermic reaction and it right. gets warm. Mm -hmm. and I don't think the cold is going to affect it. Mm -hmm. and But I may be wrong on that, but that's something to research. I know you can't use PVA glue, obviously. Right, right, right. My biggest recommendation is if it's like 10 degrees in your shop, you need to go inside. <laughs> it's too cold out there. <laughs> well, what about, yeah. what, what if he's using like hide glue that he's warmed up in like, say warm water or something. I mean, surely, yeah, I understand the outside temperature is cold, but if it's, if it's flowing and if you get it on the wood, I think it'll be fine. Right. Yeah. I'm thinking mm -hmm. the same thing too, that he could warm up the glue and use something like a hide glue that, you know, requires warming up in the first place. Now I know that there Lee Valley, I believe sells it. You get it anywhere. It's system three. It's a cold cure epoxy. Mm -hmm. It works down to, to 35, according to the information on the bottle. I know Gorilla Glue needs a minimum of 40. This is tough if you're going that low. 
um, I don't think woodworking would be very enjoyable. It's <laughs> only <laughs> going size. I, I don't think I think glue is going to be the least of your worries. You don't to worry about your hands and how you're going to clamp something up with the gloves on. And <laughs> yeah, cold cure epoxy, but 35. If you're going below that, I, I don't know if, if I would recommend it. That's all epoxy. Well, what about something like a like a total boat epoxy? Not the just a regular two part epoxy. I wonder what the cured temperature is for I saw on West Systems, West Systems said that anything below, I think, 50 degrees or 40 or 50, I can't remember, but it, it, it's, there's, there's a minimum temperature that, um, huh. as well with, with West Systems. Yeah. And I looked at that on, looked at the back, back of my bottle before I came on the podcast and yeah, definitely there's a minimum temperature. So I don't think that I've ever used glue lower than probably 45 degrees in my shop i don't think i've used glue less than 55 degrees if it's like 50 degrees in my shop a i'm not going in my shop and b i'm not gluing anything up i'll I'll, I'll run a heater in the shop to get the the temperature up before i do it yeah well it's kind of like when you do your veneering you put a heat blanket over it you can try that yeah exactly yeah exactly yeah but if it's that cold i mean it's gonna i I would assume it, it chalks up when it's that cold I'd imagine. PVA glue. Yeah. So, and you'd have to be like pretty quick with that heat blanket. Yeah. Just bring it in the house to do it. Well, that, that that's really what I would suggest before I said get out of the garage would be to bring it inside. Yeah. If, if, if he's finishing up glue up and then bring, bring the piece inside to have it set up. Yeah. Your wife, your wife will not mind you gluing stuff up on her dining room table. I Trust wouldn't suggest it. Yeah, she'll, she'll be fine with it. If it's a little miter box, no biggie. If it's a uh, dining room tabletop, different story. Yeah. And here's here's my advice. Wait till she's gone. <laughs> then do it. Because, you know, that, there's that old saying, it's a lot easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. <laughs> right? Very true. Very uh, true. I've never done a glue up inside in, in the house. It's always been out in the garage. Uh, haven't Haven't gone down that path yet. All right. right. Well, I believe the next question goes to Sean. Is that right? That's right. All right. This is from Dale. Hi, I just joined as a new patron and my name is Dale. I've been listening for a couple of months and have tried spraying shellac on ambrosia maple. I sanded with 400 grit between each of the three coats. And then I sprayed with a water-based polyurethane as a final coat. I'm new to spraying, but what I found was that all of the vertical surfaces turned out great, but I get a lot of nibs on the horizontal surfaces. Any idea why? Yeah, welcome to the world of dust. <laughs> I mean, if you're finishing in your home garage, dust is just something you're going to have to account for, yeah. you know, especially on horizontal surfaces. You know, even if I clean my shop really well, turn off all the fans for 24 hours and don't move anything, I'm still going to get dust on yeah. horizontal pieces. I mean, it's just par for the course. Uh, now you can, if you have finishing racks that have covers on each of the shelf, uh, you know, that's going to cover the parts that you can place them there after you spray. But the, w- what you want to do is you want to block any of that dust in the air from landing on your, on the surfaces. You know, there have been times where, you know, I'm making a box, I'm going to rub a, you know, put a shellac on there and I've placed it underneath a piece of plywood and the plywood covered it. And they were almost perfect with very few, if any dust nibs. Um, you know, the name of the game is to, you need a clean room or you need to get rid of the dust or you need to factor that into your process 
just you need to prevent the dust from landing on your horizontal pieces if you can help it. Put some plastic down, uh, put something over top of it. But you know you're just going to have to account for dust and uh, and just know that it's part of part of part of the game. Um, do you guys do anything special when you're putting a finish down to prevent any dust nips from landing in your wood or in your finish rather? No, not really. I, I mean, you 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 put it very succinctly right at the beginning, which is welcome to the world of dust in your shop, because that's exactly what it is. I mean, I run the, uh, I have a jet, you know, over overhead air cleaner thing, one of those big boxes. And it does a pretty good job. I let it run if I know I'm going to be doing a lot of vertical or horizontal surfaces. I'll let it run for an hour or two you know, typically at lunch and then I'll come back out and I'll, I'll, I'll start finishing then. And it helps quite a bit, but still, there's still dust in the air and you just, there's no way around it. So that's why you have to finish the finish, whether that's with steel wool, steel wool and wax, uh, a scotch bright pad, sandpaper, Whatever you use, you've got to you've got to rub it out a little bit. Dust is just part of the game, man. If if you're finishing in the same space where you're, machine- even if you're not finishing in the same space, it doesn't matter. Dust yeah. is going to be there no matter what. Gonna you're never going to get rid of it unless you're working in a a, a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's there. But I think the best thing to do is um, is exactly what you said, Guy. Is figure out a process by which you're using you know, steel, wool, uh, wax, whatnot to, as you build up that finish, small nibs that are sort of left behind are just part of the buildup in terms of the finish. And then, uh, you know, you're, you're taking off that last little final coat with, you know, with steel wool or four aught steel wool, whatever it is that you're using just to kind of smooth everything over. Hopefully, hopefully you're not getting like huge nibs in there where, you know, you can actually see it in the finish. Um, but yeah, every I, one thing I hate is big nibs, big nibs. <laughs> I've never, I've never heard of that. Or those just wood chunks. Uh, yeah, seen. I guess they're just wood chunks that better not have any of those in there. That'd be bad, but mega nibs, monster nibs, <laughs> just <laughs> the nibs from Detroit. Huge <laughs> nibs. Oh God. <laughs> um, but just figuring out a, you know, mitigation process by which you're, you're going through, uh, you know, progressively, you know, smaller grits as you're, as you're uh, adding coats on. So it's all I can Yeah. Do. And, and give it a, give it a try on trying to cover your piece. I mean, that works really well for me um, mm-hmm. when I had small enough pieces. And if you need to end with a glossier sheen, you know, build up the finishes and, and rub out the finish to get a smooth surface and then yeah. polished back out to the sheen that you want. It's a battle. I mean, it's even, it, it's a battle. But the thing is, before you even start the finishing, you know the battle is in front of you. So you just have to be mentally, mentally prepared for it. It's like, okay, I know this is going to happen. What A, what kind of finish am I using? And, and B, how am, after I get everything done, mm-hmm. how am I going to finish the finish to get rid of the last set of nibs and get the sheen that I want right. and get the protection that I want? So that's really what you need to think about. All right. Hope that helps. Guy, we're back off. Well, we're off to you for the first time. All right. I'm still trying to think of a joke for more nibs stuff, <laughs> but I'll, I'll move on. 
So this is from Max. This is addressed to me. That's why I'm answering it. It says, guys, since you started working in the other more commercial shop, how did working there change your behavior in your own shop? Are you faster now? Do you still treat your own projects the same way you did before working there? Cheers from Austria, Max. And he said, P.S. No kangaroos in Austria. (laughs) I never thought there was kangaroos in Austria, but there's probably still nibs. In Austria. In Austria. Austrian nibs. I think maybe. um, Austrian nibs, that sounds like a treat, doesn't it? Sure does. For a band. What'd you have? I had a a Coke and some Austrian nibs. (laughs) All right. So anyways, that's really stupid. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I took this question. I know it, 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 it's something that that we and Sean might not be able to ring in with, but maybe they can. The first question is, you know, has it changed on the behavior in our own shop? Absolutely. I am much faster now. And one of the, the biggest behaviors that changed is, Before, I was always worried about every little single detail, things that are seen and things that are unseen. Mm. I really concerned myself with every part of the project. Even if somebody was never going to see it, I knew it was there. So I had to get it right and I had to get it fixed. Now, when I'm working at, you know, in 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 the commercial shop, it's like, uh, that screwed up. Yeah, but nobody's going to see it. Let's move on. Mm. And it's not that it's not that we don't care. It's simply a matter of you have to learn to prioritize where to put your time. Yeah. So if you're if you're given, it's just like any other project based business, whether it's you know a construction business or carpet installation or building furniture. Every job has been quoted for a certain amount of hours. And it's your job as the worker bee to try to get it done to the customer's expectations within that period of time, right? Right. And that can be applied across, you know, many different trades. So, or, you know, even an office job, you're expected to do things and have them done in a certain amount of time. You know, during the course of a project, everybody, A, everybody makes mistakes, B, there are some things you just cannot control that get screwed up. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? Anyways, you have to learn to prioritize and say to yourself, okay, this is not important. Nobody will ever see this. But, yeah, it's right on the bottom here, and I can see it right there. Yeah, that's because it's three and a half feet off the ground, and you can see it. Nobody is going to lay on the carpet of a conference room and some big corporation office and lay on the floor to look at this thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. So, you know, I, I deal with this all the time with some of the guys cause they, they're so concerned about the bottom of tables and I'm like, okay, you know, let, let's, let's call the guy, uh, his name is Bob. I don't have their name, Bob, but let's say we, I'm talking to Bob and he's going, yeah, wait, I got to get this out of here because it's, you know, this I got, I got to fill it. And I, I said, Bob, how many deliveries have you been on? I've been on 20 deliveries in the last six months. Have you ever seen a customer get down on the floor, lay on his back and look up at the bottom of the table? 
And he said, no, of course not. And I said, then why the hell are you spending time on this? Yep. So that's really what it's taught me is to prioritize things. And I think that that that's a good thing to consider for everybody. I don't know. What, what, what about you, Sean? Do you do things, you know, a lot differently now than you did them, let's say, three or four years ago? Not necessarily because of skill level, just because of time requirements or anything like that. Do you work faster now? Oh, you should. You've got more experience. Yeah. I mean, I, I work faster because I do a better job of planning my days, my hours mm-hmm. in the shop versus before because, you know, you don't want to waste your time thinking about what you need to do next when you're out in the shop. You need to just work. So I, I do a better job of planning. Um, and, and you're right. I've, I've taken that mindset of, you know, like the desk that I'm sitting at my Nakashima table, I just hand plane the bottom. There's no, you can still fill all the, all the, the uh, planing tracks because you're never going to, you're never going to look at it. And you're never going to touch it. Even if I went down to my kitchen table that I purchased and the bottom is rough, it's unfinished. I mean, just the things like that, that don't matter. Just, just don't think about it. Do what you got to do and move on. And another thing is that I've learned is to, when I mess up, take a second, get over it and move on. I mean, I would, I would go back and forth in my head and get upset and just ruin a complete few hours in the shop. I've just learned that mistakes are going to happen. It's wood. You can recover from it. Like the current cabinet that I have now, I've got a couple of things I got to remake. That's fine. You know, I looked at it. I didn't get upset. I thought about it. It bummed me out a little bit, but then I just moved on. That's I've learned how to, how to just move on and not let stuff bother me mentally and slow me down. Just being prepared and uh, not getting upset when I do make mistakes has made me more efficient in the shop. Yeah, that's good. We, I think the biggest difference that I've seen in my own shop is when I've gone to other people's shops uh, for classes or for workshops and whatnot and seeing how they work and taking note of the things that they see to be important, what their threshold for acceptable is. Uh, For instance, when I went and built this Windsor rocker, the whole thing is built using hand tools, except for like a bandsaw and a router for the, um, for the rockers. It's about the only thing that's done with a machine, but everything else is, is done by hand tools. So in, in that case, because everything was done with hand tools, you really gotta like take off a lot of, like you gotta go to town to really screw something up, right? Because you're kind of finessing through things. And that was kind of an interesting experience for me because it gave me a perspective in terms of what is acceptable within uh, Greg Pennington's shop, right? He's built so many of these and he teaches a lot of people every year that he's just gotten so used to knowing, okay, don't go any further. You're done. That's it. We're good here. You know, stop. Or he'll say, no, you're not even, you're not even close. Like you need to be taking a lot of material and having that experience to go into somebody else's shop, uh, really has changed how I work in my own shop. Uh, I will say without a doubt, I'm actually slower, but that's because of the sort of situation that I'm in with having, you know, a child and a full-time job and, and, you know, expanding our family and living in a new house and moving all those things have just greatly slowed me down in general. But, uh, but I think the biggest thing that has changed is just being in other people's shop and seeing how they work has really kind of made me get a little bit better perspective of what is acceptable and what's unacceptable in terms of tolerances. 
things like that. Yeah, it's it's always a, a balancing act to to really figure out what's again what's important, what isn't important. Mm-hmm. I guess you know when I do have time in my own shop and I'm out there building whatever I need to, I'm I'm doing it at a much much quicker pace than I would before. So before I would like I do an operation. Mm-hmm. I'd sit, I'd kick back. i say, okay, what am I going to do next? I'd sit my coffee, you know, uh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Okay. I'm ready to go back to work now, but not when I'm at work now. I mean, it's just like, I need to move. I need to keep going because that's my job. And when I do get in my own shop, that's carried over quite a bit. So I'm, I'm not taking those five minute breaks every 15, 20 minutes. I'm just moving all the time because I'm just getting things done. So that's changed my attitude quite a bit. But like I said, more than anything else, what it's taught me is to, to prioritize what's important and what's not important and to let the non-important things go. Just say, "Eh, okay, I'm done. I got to move on to the next thing. So nice. All right. Well, now I'd like to have a word from this episode's sponsor, Mavericks Abrasives. They're a family-run, American-made manufacturer of abrasives such as sanding discs and sanding belts. There are no materials from China in their manufacturing process, and they really stand behind their quality and service. They have 5-inch sanding disc boxes starting at $12.50, and their pricing on sanding belts is the best on the internet. Give Garrett a call or check out their website at worldwideweb.maverickabrasives.com. So we, no, I'm going to mix it up. I'm going off script. <laughs> Let's do it. Sean, you have the next question. It's crazy around here. Yeah. Woo. Here we go. <laughs> this is from Brandon. I'm going to be using General Finishes gel stain on a small toy chest. I've heard two different methods to prevent blotches. Apply mineral spirit slip coat prior to staining or apply shellac prior to staining. Is one better than the other? Thanks, Brandon. Brandon, I don't he didn't state what material he's using. So I, I imagine he's using one of the blotch prone, but uh, this is a good question, but I think we need to start out with a brief explanation. So what is blotching? In short, blotching is uneven absorption of stain, causing it to soak in more in some places and less than others. Now, you typically see this in lumber that has uneven densities uh, or softer wood such as pine, fir, or tight grain wood such as cherry, birch, maple, poplar, and there's a few others. And you'll also notice this sometimes on some of the um, highly figured woods as well. Uh, now, typically, if I'm going to stain a known blotchy wood like I have in the past with with pine and poplar, I'm going to try and use gel stains if they have it in the color that I want. Since gel stain is a thicker bodied uh, stain, it doesn't penetrate like a thin oil-based stain wood. It stays right at the surface of the wood, providing an even color because, again, you're going to have the absorption issues with uh, blotch-prone woods. Now, you can use things like wood conditioners or methods that you mentioned above, like uh, a thin coat of shellac. And the key is to, and what they do is they partially seal the wood to help promote even absorption. Most, if not all the wood conditioners on the market, all they are are just thinned, thin down finish that is applied to the wood uh, to partially seal it before applying the stain. I personally have used a thin uh, seal coat of shellac as a, um, a preventative method for staining. I've used the general finishes uh, wood conditioner 
it works really well, I think. Uh, and I know there's a product that Charles Neal uh, used to sell that people really liked. He has it was a, a blotch. I forgot the name of it, but it's a um, Charles Neal. Charles Neal's pre pre something conditioner is what it was called. Pre stain conditioner. Pre stain. Right. Yeah. yeah. Pre stain conditioner. A lot of people really like that one as well. But essentially, they're they're thinned finishes that are sealing the wood to help help uh, evenly distribute the uh, the penetration. Now, obviously, there are trade-offs when you're using wood conditioners and that you're not going to get such you know, a, a, a rich of a color on the wood. But if you need to use a wood that's known to blotch, it's, you know, it's the name of the game. I've not personally used a uh, slip coat of mineral spirits when doing this. I'm not sure if that would... I've never tried it, but I'm just going to just ramble about it for a second. But to me, wouldn't that thin the gel stain and cause it to penetrate deeper, thus causing more of a blotch than using a thicker gel stain, which stays on the surface? I, I don't know. I've never tried a uh, mineral spirits slip coat. I've only stuck with the wood conditioners and or gel stain. And I've, I've actually got a few videos on my YouTube channel that show my process for staining poplar and pine um, using dyes and gel stains that that you can check out. But if I'm going to be staining something, I try to stick to gel stains, especially on blotch prone woods. We have you used uh, any mineral spirits as a, a slip coat prior to staining? I, I don't even know what. I'm sorry, I don't know what that means. Like slip coat, could, could you explain? Yeah, I, I, that's what I was trying to figure out what slip coat. I'm means. guessing what they're just saying, like a a, a thin coat of mineral spirits to, to wet the surface to, I guess, so to you apply the, the, the stain while it's still wet. That's what I'm gathering from. I've never heard of it. A slip coat. Cause if you dry, if you apply it and it dries, it kind of, you're back to just raw wood. Yeah. I feel like that would be counterintuitive to what like a gel stain is doing. Right. Because if you're thinning it, then certain portions, certain portions that are less dense than other portions of the wood are going to absorb the stain more. And you're going to get these uneven, you're going to get an uneven coating. Yeah. Uh, that's the only thing that I can think of because that's the whole point of a gel stain. Not the whole point of it, but one of the selling points mm-hmm. is it's thick. It doesn't, it doesn't penetrate. It's help helps prevent blotching, but yeah, it's, it sits on top of the surface instead of penetrating the wood. The, 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 the downside to it is that some people say it, it, it hides the grain of the wood and it hides the beauty of the wood. So if you've got anything that, you know, might cause blotching like figure, mm-hmm. it's going to cover that up. Yeah, it'll muddle in it. Uh, well, yeah. The writer of the question mentioned a thin seal coat of shellac. If you go too thick, I imagine you get the issue of not getting enough of the color into the wood, correct? Correct. It's going to okay. block it from mm-hmm. actually sticking, okay. absorbing, yeah. not sticking. What are your all's go to for preventing blotching? Like on cherry? Well, let's let's do this. Well, cherry for staining, not necessarily for putting down like a an oil based uh, finish. Staining, I stain so little. Yeah. So I mean, if I want it to look like walnut, I make it out of walnut. Yeah. All right. So, so we. What is you- <laughs> <laughs> the guy I'm answer? In, I'm in the same boat. I've never stained anything. I've used aniline dye, but I don't think that qualifies as staining yeah it does 
Does it? Yeah, I think staining is a general term. I don't think we need to get that granular. Well, dye isn't using a dye isn't staining. <laughs> it's staining, but you're staining with dye. I've I've done nothing. I, I've I've used a walnut dye stain, whatever you want to call it, to make walnut give an even color of walnut. Yeah, make it color fast. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um. I've not. I've not stained or dyed something to make it look different than what it actually is. Yeah. I, like I said, I've, I've done quite a bit of that, you know, uh, using, a the, the, uh, oh, I can't even think of the name, the trans tint dyes, yep. uh, putting it in denatured alcohol and using it on walnut to help, mm-hmm. uh, even out the colors and also help, help prevent it from turning orange, right. which walnut turns orange after a period of time under UV light. Anyways, so back to the blotching. The only time I get blotching issues is mainly when I'm working with cherry and I put an oil finish on it. Hmm. You can get some blotching that that can be very annoying. Uh, In which case, before I do cherry, I usually put, I don't know, again, slip coat. You want what I call a slip coat or I call it a wash coat Mm -hmm. of shellac. And on cherry, I typically use garnet shellac because it imparts color to the cherry. Yeah. I've also done quite a bit with maple in the past. And for that, I've used uh, blonde shellac as a base or the the, the, the wash coat. And then I've, and I have used stain on top of that. But you get the, that's the trans tint dye, I should say, yeah. to give it a more warm early American brownish color kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I rarely, I can't think of the last time I used an oil stain. Right. I've used a gel stain a couple of times, but I can't think of the last time I've used an oil-based stain. Everything for the last 15, maybe close to 20 years for me has all been that, that trans tint dye from uh, Jeff Jewett over there in Cleveland, over yeah. there in the wonderful city of Cleveland, mm-hmm. Ohio. I, yep. I was, yep. Completely agree with you on that source. I've got nightmares of the old Minwax oil stain that my dad would use <laughs> many, many, many years ago to uh, stain wooden cabinets and ugh, not a fan of it. I like the uh, general finishes. Now I do have a series where I made a, a bookcase out of poplar where I mm-hmm. blotch I control. That. Huh? I remember that? that. Oh, okay. I thought you broke up there. Yep, I did a blotch control, and then I did a dye to, I think, I did a dye to set the tone, and then I did a, a stain after that. I think, I think that's what I did. It's been so many years, I can't remember. <laughs> I know it was a major, major pain in the butt. It was being so big, it was huge. And then I got done, and the and the uh, customer filled it up with stuff, and then said, oh, can I get a second one? I'm like, no. <laughs> Negative, because it was for a friend. So he just covered the... Uh, the, the materials, materials yeah. and I'm like, no, sorry, buddy. <laughs> but hope that helps, Brandon. Hui, uh, off to you. All right, this question is from Bill, and he says, "Hi guys. First of all, I sure have enjoyed your podcast, and I have learned a tremendous amount." On a side note, 
My goal is to be just like Guy someday and be a, in a position in life to do whatever the hell I want to do and not give a damn what Believe me, that's not, that's not me. It's, it, all I'm saying is that what, that's what Bill wrote here. <laughs> I think it's a noble goal is what he says. So my question involves face jointing boards. I wonder how much pressure I'm supposed to be pressing down on the board as it comes over the knives. Do I push down hard enough to take the spring out of the board or do I let it coast over naturally as to not take the spring out of the board? If I put too much pressure on the board, it just springs back after it comes off the machine. But if I don't put enough pressure on, I don't get clean results. I sure appreciate your help and I look forward to hearing your answer. So yes, Bill, those are issues. If you push too hard, it's going to spring back. You know, if you if you take that spring out of a potato chip and you run it across the joiner, you're going to get a potato chip coming out of the joiner. So pushing too hard is not a good thing. But at the same time, you don't want the board skating across the knives either. I know that there have been times where I didn't use enough pressure and I actually got like kind of like scalloping from the cutter head. Have you guys ever had that happen to you guys? Probably not. Yep. But Anyway, I've gotten scalloping. Probably not. <laughs> All right. But I've, I've gotten scalloping before. Now, now, one thing that I have done, uh, I've had boards that either had too much of a twist or, or too much of a bow, is actually go at it with a hand plane a little bit at the end so that it would sit a little bit better on my joiner beds. And, and that's, hel that's helped quite a bit. But no, Bill, you're absolutely right. If you push too hard, you're going to basically take that spring out and it's just going to continue to have that bow or that cup or whatever it is that it has, it's just going to continue to have that with the board coming out of the joiner. You do have to put a little bit of pressure down so that uh, it actually is, you know, contacting the knives and that so that you're getting a nice clean cut. But at the same time, don't push too hard. You're going to, you're going to get a potato chip coming out of the joiner. So is there anything you, else you guys can add to that question? You know, I, I know we've talked about uh, jointing techniques and whatnot, but uh, maybe it's something we, we can revisit. No, not really. I mean, you, you, you hit the nail around the head. If, it, if it's playing the face playing or face joining the board and what, you know, is commonly referred to as the frowny face mm -hmm. um, where the, the, the center of the board is higher than the ends of the board. Mm -hmm. So it's a, uh, uh, concave pattern you're looking at it from the side that's going to happen and if you press down in the middle if that board is pliable enough for you to press down the middle to get take the spring out of it it's just going to pop right back up yeah um i've learned a couple things to help to help plane those boards you can either push them through and go eh, and then empty space and then eh, again what I do is I'll take the board and I know that that, you know, first inch or two is only going to get face jointed. Mm -hmm. So that's what I do. Yeah. I just go eh, pick the board up and keep going back until that it starts playing more and more of the boards. Right. I kind of get a tapered board, but I mean, if the board is that badly warped to begin with, the, the yield is only going to be so high to begin with. Right. I just look at it, it's easier for me to do it that way. Sure. Instead of taking an even amount off of each end. Yep. What about you, Sean? How do you deal with, with boards that are like that? I throw them away and get another one. No. Uh, <laughs> the name of the game, 
for me, and I'm sure will work for you all, is you want to remove the high points without putting enough pressure to change the shape of the board. Mm-hmm. Yep. You want to put you want to, you want the joiner to remove the high points, and um, if you push down, you know that's that's not the natural shape of that board. So you're you know you're fighting against yourself. It's kind of like when you when you have a board that's twisted. A long time ago, six months ago. No, I'm just joking. I would <laughs> I would get confused. I'm like, how can I flatten this out without losing a lot of material? And and it just clicked. Put your hands on the corners that are touching the bed that don't rock. Yep. Remove those high points until you get the board flat. the The name of the game is to remove the high points and without without messing up the original shape of the board and being able to say how much pressure over a podcast is extremely difficult because it depends on the material, depends on the thickness. You know, it just, it depends on the length of the board because if it's longer, it's easier to bend it. So it, you just need to put just enough pressure on it to get rid of the high points, to let the joiner do its job and flatten it out because you're only going to fight yourself if you push too hard. That's all that I have. Mm. Yeah. All right, I think Guy, uh, you got the last question. Do I? Mm-hmm. I feel honored. So this question is from Doug, and it says, "Hey guys, and guys specifically, oh, another one just for me. <sighs> I'm looking to possibly build another router table. I already have one in the wing of my table saw and love it, but being that I am for the time being in a smaller shop." Everything has to be put away at night. I need multifunction. Looking at how the Incra LS attaches to the table, I was thinking I could remove the positioner and put it on the wall when not in use. Am I killing the whole function of repeatability if I take it off and put it back on when I want to use it? The answer to that, is no, you're not killing the function uh, function or the repeatability. So the way I'm taking this, Doug, is that you want you to have a standalone router table instead of one in the wing of your table saw. That's actually going to take up a lot more room than not having a, an extra router table. And if you have an extra router table, you know, you got that LS positioner on there. I don't know why you need to take it off. So I guess that's a, that's a question when it's, when it's the routers in the wing of your table saw and you've got that, that fence you're using as your router fence on there. And maybe, cause he just put LS, he didn't, didn't really say it's the LS for the table saw or the LS for the router table. Um, but they have a, an LS for the, the, the table saw that you can use as a router table or as a router fence also. Mm-hmm. And it really depends on which side of the blade your router table is. The router table is between the blade and the fence on the right-hand side. You really don't have to move that fence and you're not going to diminish its repeatability and its calibration. Mm-hmm. If the router table is on to the left of the blade, you've got to undo these nuts and the whole thing slides over and then you use it on the, the other side. Right. And then you put it back and butt it up against the, the some a predetermined point on the rail and you tighten it down. I can tell you from experience, don't do that. I've never moved. Every time I move my fence, 
along those rails like that, that loses all its calibration. I got to recalibrate it. Yep. Which is not that big of a deal, but it's still a big deal. Now, again, the reason I took this, I know I'm the only one that has all the fancy Inker stuff, but you guys have some or have had some iteration of this before um, with the Anchor. Did you ever think of or have you ever had a router table and your table saw wing? I think, Hui, is, is yours in your table saw? Yes, it is. It is? I thought you had a standalone. Mm-mm, no, no, it's in the wing. It's in the extension wing of my table saw okay. on the right side. And I have a Incra Ultra and I just keep it on. I, I guess I'm just not seeing why he needs to take it off. I can't either. I, I, I don't get it. I don't understand why he needs to take it off. If he's built a table that will fit the OS, then it's going to fit unless he's going to stack stuff on top of the router table. Or use it as an assembly table or something. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, because he says I need multifunction. Maybe that's why. Yeah. But uh, if, it's, if it's a router router table and not the table saw, I say, yeah, you can take it off and hang it on the wall. It's really not going to screw anything up. It's just if you move that base. Right, right. If that base is staying in place, then he can take the fence off. But I don't really feel he, like gaining all that much by doing it, that because he still has the base. on there. Exactly. It, that, that's... It just doesn't. We're. I think we're missing part of this. And and if he needs another table, why take it out of the table saw? Just build you a a small multifunction table. Yeah, yeah. I think. But, I, but I see. What I see. What he's saying about having having it separate because then he can make the table small table saw a smaller footprint. You can make the router table a smaller footprint as opposed to one big, you know, one big footprint. Right, one big tool. Like I get. I get it. But can you though? I mean, you're going to have a, a router table that's going to have to take a footprint. Yeah, but it can be pushed off to the side, right? Whereas, like, you can't. I mean, I guess you can push. I don't because it's so stinking huge. The table saw and the router table combined is just very large um, that I don't move it. Plus, it can't be moved really, honestly. But if they're individual tools and you can move, you know, the router table out of the way. If you've got to rip like a big piece of plywood or something like that, you see what I'm saying? Like individually you can move them around as opposed to just having one big footprint. That's just much harder to move around. So is it, is he going to cut the rail on his table saw to make it smaller after he removes the, the router? Because it's still going to be that the same size table, it's just going to be closer to the wall. If he's going to push it up to the wall, then, then where it's at now. And yeah. I'm just, I, I I don't know without more information from, I guess his main question is what he, you know, is he killing the whole function of repeatability? If he has to take it off? Yes. If you have to take the fence out and move the base, like guy said, absolutely. Because yeah. you know, so it's, yeah, you're right, Sean. Yeah. So if you look at the, the TSLS, which is the, the LS positioner for the table saw, mm-hmm. Again, that rides on a carriage that you can move from one to use a as a router fence from one side of the blade to the other. And when you undo that and move it, you lose the calibration. I don't care, you know, Inker might get mad at me, but it's the it's the absolute truth. Uh, every time I've done it, I've had to recalibrate my fence. Right. Doesn't take so, long, but it is an extra step. Yeah, I don't want to have to do it. I just want to put the fence on and get back to work. So I would never take that off completely. No. If you're doing um, that, just get a smaller table top and do a, use a regular fence. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm thinking. 
Well, I hope that helps, Doug. So let's talk about what we have going on in the shop. And I would like to call on Hui. Okay. So what I got going on in the shop, well, I, I made a whole bunch of these, about six of them, uh, Panto router accessory trays. Yeah, uh, I saw that. Yeah, I cut them out on the CNC, sent them out to a couple people that want, well, not a couple, six people that wanted them. And uh, that, that was kind of a nice quick turnaround thing. You know, Jay, Jay Bates had come up with the Panorouter cart and, you know, pe- folks that had bought his plans. Uh, I basically just supported providing that as as a service for, for people that wanted it. I did get the edge banding cut and uh, the apron done on this round, uh, I guess, extension table that I'm making for my for my kitchen. And I've got the edge banding drying in the garage as we talk in some uh, strap clamps and uh, and a couple of clamping calls on it. So hopefully tomorrow I'll get that off and I'll get it cleaned up and trimmed up and ready to go. That's all I've got going on in the shop. How about you, Sean? Making slow progress on the cabinet. Uh, got the door mounted with the hinges starting on the drawer now, which is going to be interesting. Uh, getting the joinery cut on that. Like I mentioned earlier, I, I ran into a mistake with the sliding dovetails on the top and the bottom panel. I made the grooves too too long, and when I cut the angles on the sidewalls so that it would match the curve of the door, you can see the slots. So, um, no big deal. I'm going to just make a, a new top and the bottom. Luckily, it's a small cabinet, so not a lot of not a lot of waste. I may be able to reuse one of the boards anyway. So, and then outside of that, I hope to have that done by the end of 2021. <laughs> <laughs> I hope to have it done soon, but I've been saying that I've been just been taking my time, not filming anything on this. I started to film it, but stop because it's just a hassle. So my sister wants me to make a TV stand slash credenza small one and two mm-hmm. end tables. So I'm going to start the process of drawing something up for those. So yeah. That's pretty much all that I have going on out in the shop. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. No, not, not that's about all that I have. What about you, Guy? Well, I, I finally got my CNC up and running. Looks great. Yes. It's, it's, been a, it's been a hard road. I had some computer issues that I took care of, so I finally got that working, and then I had to do some tweaking to the settings of it to work the way I wanted it to. So that's up and going. How you li- how, how do you like it so far? So far, so good. I haven't made anything with it yet. I've just got it going. Yeah. So <laughs> other than that, it's awesome. Um, <laughs> at work, I've got a lot. I've always got a lot of things going on. And it's funny you should mention you're going to make like a credenza media cabinet, Sean, because that's what I'm making right now with one of the guys as a training exercise. We're going to make cabinets the way we make a standard cabinet, a face frame mm-hmm. cabinet, using mm-hmm. all the things that are standard. And I was told I can do whatever I want to as far as the style goes. So it's just a, it's a plywood box, mm-hmm. but I'm doing some different things with the drawer sizes and the, the, the size of the doors in relationship to the center and it should look pretty good when I get it done. And I'm going to do some weird stuff with colors too that I think is going to set the piece apart because it's just, it's just a plywood box. Is this strictly for training 
Or is it actually yeah. going to a client? Okay, training. Okay. It's strictly for training, and we're going to put it in our showroom. But uh, I didn't want to build just, you know, I, I build a lot of just plywood boxes that sure. have a frame on it then have like a drawer and a door. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but we do it now in a very certain way. So everything looks the same every time. So we want, we don't have any piece like that in our showroom and we wanted to have a piece in our showroom that shows those particular construction details. But I didn't want to put something in the showroom that's bleh. Mm-hmm. Just a plywood box. So I decided to make this and I'm going to do some weird stuff with it. And I know the salesperson is going to hate it and curse my name, <laughs> which makes me very happy. Oh, great. of course. <laughs> yes. Cause my, my life revolves around the unhappiness of other people. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but uh, that's, that's, like I said, I've always got stuff going on at work. I could bore you with all that stuff, but uh, nothing really exciting. I, I think the most exciting thing that happened was they, they had me build, I, I don't know if I talked about this last time or not, they had me build an eight foot round table. So I had this big eight foot round table that I, that I cut and it's in two sections, right? Mm-hmm. And they had me build a big, huge base for it which I did, you know, this tabletop's, you know, 200 pounds, easy, 200 pounds. It's huge. It's huge. And I get done with it. And then the, the, and it's off to finishing. And before I can get finished, I, I'm, I'm saying, uh, where's the data port, <laughs> which is a hole in the table. And I'm like, uh, there isn't one. Well, the customer wants a data port right in the center of the table. And I'm like, okay, that makes no sense because the table's eight foot round. You're never going to get to the data port. But anyways, <laughs> I had to take the the base that was already made and cut the center of the base away and put this box in the middle of it. It was kind of cool. It was kind of fun. But yeah, I saw weird, that. I that saw was the weirdest person. thing I've done lately. Yeah. I've done a lot of weird stuff lately at work. <sighs> so, But uh, I think that's going to do it for the show. And uh, we would like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really does help us in search rankings. And, of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. So please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you do have woodworking questions you would like answered, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com. Or DM us. What does DM mean anyways? I see that all the time. Direct message. Oh, thanks, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) DM us through Instagram at Woodshop Life. And you can reach me at guyswoodshop.com. Where can you be found at we? Alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my socials are on my website. And Sean, where can we find you? Simplecove.com and at Simplecove on social media and YouTube. All right. Thank you so much, guys. It was always a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, we'll do it again in a couple weeks. Talk to you in a couple. See you.